0: Hi, Jay. Hi, Avi. How are you doing? I'm
1: doing well. Sorry for the delay. The previous interview took longer. Uh, I I was telling the person that I have another one, uh, but uh, it just took a few minutes longer. I'm sorry about that.
0: Oh, don't you worry. It's not a problem at all. Um, Happy to be here with you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to to speak with me. My pleasure. Um,
1: We can start whenever you want. And how long do you expect
0: it? Um, well, we can we can aim for an hour, uh, and uh, then if if you're if you're okay with maybe a little bit of spillover, I'll try and I'll try and be as succinct as possible. That should be fine,
1: uh, and let me just double check what I yeah, that should be no problem. I have another interview coming, but it's in in a couple of hours, so
0: my goodness, busy, busy day for you then, yeah.
1: No, it's sort of typical. I had the over the past uh, year i had 2000 interviews so.
0: oh my goodness yeah well i can't boast that that amount of numbers just yet so 2000 is pretty impressive but uh yeah no i'm really really happy to have you here and um definitely an exciting moment in in history for a conversation that has experienced decades of ridicule having serious academics and and scientists like yourself take a keen interest in uh in understanding this phenomenon. I mean, it's certainly laying down the necessary framework for a wider level of engagement on this issue. And before we jump into the Galileo Project specifically, I'd just like to ask what first got you interested in UFOs in general?
1: Well, um, as an astronomer, I studied the, the early universe, uh, the first stars, and then black holes, and Um, you know, in those areas of research, uh, when you see something unusual, it's very common to suggest possible explanations, some of which are not proven, but the idea is it would motivate collecting more data and evidence that would uh, educate us about what reality is like. For example, we don't know what most of the matter in the universe is, and it's a different form of matter than we are made of, and it's some type of particles we've never figured out. What their nature is, and uh, you know. So there were suggestions for types of particles that may be the dark matter, and uh, experimentalists went out and searched for them and didn't find them. Uh, so for forty years, we've been doing searches for the dark matter. We haven't found it, but that's the way science is done. We are sometimes searching in the dark, and I came up with that notion of the the way scientific research is done, and. And then uh, in 2017, there was this object, uh, the first one detected from outside the solar system that came close to Earth. And uh, even though it was the first one, it looked very unusual. When you go down the street, you expect to see a person that is sort of typical, but if the first time you go down the street, you see something really unusual, that uh, raises a red flag that maybe you don't understand reality correctly. And um, that's pretty much the experience I had, that this object had a lot of anomalies, didn't look like a rock we have seen before in the solar system, and it was the first from outside the solar system. And uh, and in my book, Extraterrestrial, I talk about the various unusual facts about this object, and all these facts were collected from uh, data assembled by telescopes, you know, in, in the standard way. And even the mainstream astronomers who try to explain those anomalies, they had to come up with a, an object of a type that we've never seen before. And, you know, that to me reminds me of uh, a, a cave dweller that finds a, a cell phone and says, Uh, because he's used to playing with rocks all of his life, says it's a rock of a type that I've never seen before. And um, to me, uh, it illustrated the fact that we must leave on the table the possibility that it was artificial in origin. And actually, in September 2020, there was another object that showed some of the anomalies of this first object. Uh, And then then it turned out to be a rocket booster uh, from a 1966 launch uh, by NASA. And, you know, it was also, it didn't have a cometary tail, Didn't it was pushed away from the sun by reflecting sunlight, just like this first object, Oumuamua, was. And um, to me, it illustrated the fact that, you know, it could have, Oumuamua, this, this first object could have been artificial in origin. And that's what led me in the direction of actually proposing to date the next Oumuamua. It's just like going on a date, you meet a person that is of interest, but then by the time you realize it, the person is gone. And in the case of Oumuamua, now it's a million times fainter than it was close to the earth, so we can't really see it anymore. Uh, And so we should date the next one and bring a camera close enough, within a thousand kilometers or so, so that we can take a close up photograph of it, because they say a picture is worth a thousand words. And in my case, it's worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. And it's not a philosophical question what this object is, whether it's natural or, or artificial. Uh, it's a question to which we can find the answer by taking a megapixel image of this object. And then the other thing that um, uh, intrigued me was the report of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, Avril Haynes, delivered on the 25th of uh, June 2021 to Congress, in which uh, it was stated that there are lots of objects uh f- flying in the sky uh, to which uh, the government doesn't have a good explanation and you know uh, uh, former cia directors uh, brennan and Woolsey uh spoke about those objects and former uh, director of national intelligence john ratcliffe spoke about the satellite data that may indicate something unusual and um former president barack obama and uh uh, former Senator Bill Nelson, who heads NASA, also said that scientists should now get engaged. And that uh, motivated me to uh, consider establishing a project, scientific research project that will assemble new data. And um, uh, I tried to approach NASA and uh, see if they are... I told them, uh, you know, I, I would be glad to make your boss happy if... Uh, Uh, But I didn't get a response. And then uh, a few multi-billionaires came to the porch of my home and they were inspired by my book, uh, *Extraterrestrial* about uh, this object of Muamua. And they provided about $2 million to my research funds uh, at Harvard. And at that point, I said, okay, I can establish this uh, project, the Galileo Project, we called it. And um, the goal is twofold. One is to take a photograph of the next Oumuamua, and the second is to figure out the nature of those unidentified aerial phenomena that the government talks about.
0: Have you you had any resistance to the creation of the Galileo Project? Uh, I imagine maybe from the wider scientific community itself, perhaps even from some government channels, has there been any sort of notable resistance?
1: No, I should say that um, uh, I didn't hear anything from Washington DC except there was the uh, amendment proposed by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Mm -hmm. uh, which mentioned the Galileo Project by name. And I never spoke with her and I never lobbied for the project, but she nevertheless mentioned it. And and that amendment ended up in legislation by Congress to establish a new office in government that will... uh, Coordinate the data assembly from all sections of government about UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena, and then will deliver reports to Congress about it. And then that office um, was signed into law by President Biden and uh, will start operations in June 2022. And um, uh, it will presumably keep. Uh, all the classified data still classified so we won't have uh, access to it but it's good that um, it, it will be established because first it will coordinate the assembly of data and second it will remove um, the stigma uh from this subject and it will be this subject will be taken more seriously now that money is allocated yeah in government and so i didn't hear from the government and frankly i don't want to look at classified data because it would limit my ability to function as a as a scientist i want the data that i analyze to be open and i don't want to uh, be limited in the way i can speak about it Uh, and the sky is not classified it's just those instruments that were used by the government to collect the data that are classified so in principle we can look at the sky with off-the-shelf instrumentation that the Galileo project is putting together. And in fact, we are uh, assembling the first telescope system on the roof of the Harvard College Observatory in the coming months, uh, in the spring of uh, 2022. And and that includes um, cameras in the infrared that would take a video of the sky at all times, and also in the optical band. And so that would allow us to monitor objects both during daytime when they reflect sunlight and also nighttime when they just emit uh, infrared radiation because they're warm. And and then uh, we will also look at them at uh, the radio band and in the audio sound waves that they produce. and, uh, And there will be an artificial intelligence algorithm that will try to figure out whether an object is a bird Um, a drone or an airplane or something else and um, once the entire system works to our satisfaction hopefully by summer 2022 we'll start making copies of it and um, placing them in different geographical locations and uh, the number of copies depend depends on how much funding we have so with the current funding we'll be able to make maybe five to ten copies but Uh, The goal is to get $100 million um, such that we will have hundreds of them and um, then we will get a good census of the sky and uh, get good statistics of these unidentified objects. Now, in parallel to that, we are also partnering with uh, Planet Labs, which has, it's a company that has a fleet of 210 uh, satellites that get an image of the Earth once a day, the entire Earth. Uh, with a resolution of uh, roughly twice the size of a person, four meters or so. Um, and uh, we will try to look at unidentified objects from above, not just from below. Uh, and that would be very interesting to, to see how it unfolds. So actually, that might be the first data set that we will have our hands on. So well, altogether, yeah. you know, we have that program, but we're also designing a mission, a space mission that will bring a camera very close to the next Oumuamua. And that is a a completely separate um, program because it's more expensive to send a space mission. It's roughly half a billion dollars. And also it takes much more planning. Uh, Whereas for the UAP, we pretty much um, are hitting the ground running already now.
0: I think it's uh, I think it's important what you said about the congressional interest versus the scientific interest because I, I see it very much the same as you. It's an it's an incredible step forward that there's bipartisan support for this issue within Congress. But I, I find that what that will do more than anything else, rather than bringing out uh, amazing information for all of us to pour over, I think it's it's going to help dissipate that stigma, help dissolve down that stigma, and I put a lot more faith in the grassroots scientific community to actually then take interest in this and bolster that research effort and have a more transparent level of a conversation come from, you know, areas that aren't restricted to non-disclosure agreements and aren't restricted to top secret sensitive information. So I think that's a very important thing um, going forward with this. And um, yeah,
1: Yeah. yeah. and I I should add to that that you know, the the stigma and the ridicule within the scientific community uh, is is uh, problematic because, uh, you know, people say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm, but, mm. but it's a circular argument because if if the study of this subject is being ridiculed, then nobody is searching for that evidence. And my uh, statement is that extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary evidence ordinary funding. You need people to look at that, and one should be open-minded. And the strange thing is the government is the most conservative organization we have, and yet it allocates funds towards this study. And uh, why is the academia lagging behind? You know, that's a, an interesting question. It's supposed to be more open-minded. And uh, obviously, if, this, if, if some objects are of extraterrestrial origin, it's not a national security matter. It's an international matter. And that is the focus of science, and science should be open-minded. So, if the government says we don't understand something, and the public says we are really interested in, in this something, then I think it's the obligation of scientists to engage in that and clear up the fog. Now, it's possible we put out a fishing net, and we might catch only sardines. You know, things that are like we will find out that all these all these objects that we find are um, explained as natural objects, or As human-made objects. You know, it's possible. Uh, We will report whatever we find. But uh, even in that case, it's a very important thing to do because uh, by clearing up the fog, um, you basically say, let's move on. You know, instead of scientists ridiculing it and then the public speculating about what it might mean and the government being confused, even if the contribution of the Galileo project would be simply you know, to figure out what these things are, and even if they are natural or human-made, we just explained that, that by itself would be a major step forward in the sense of let's move on and talk about other things, you know, let's not waste time on this. Now, I should also say that it's enough to have one object of extraterrestrial origin, you know, and the even if it's a mixed bag and most of the objects are not really of interest we only need one
0: we only need one you
1: only need one and and the only way to find whether there is such an object um because there there is this sense by many people that argued for years that there there are some strange objects out there it's quite possible that most of these strange objects were you know either employed by the military and the civilians who sh- who sh- saw them didn't really understand what they come from it's also possible that many of them were natural but and, and it's really a mixed bag most of the objects are have mundane explanations but that you know so it will not be a vindication that indeed all these reports were correct because many of them may maybe related to human-made objects, okay? And, or meteors, you know, if you see a meteor and you think, oh, it comes from space, it's unusual. But um, my point is, you know, if if there are things coming from an extraterrestrial origin that are equipment, that are artificial in origin, we find only one of them. That by itself is a major advance in our knowledge and will change our perspective uh, and will change the future of humanity.
0: Very well put. Um, another, another very interesting addition to the Galileo Project is the legendary computer scientist and uh, one of the godfathers, really, of UFO research, Dr. Jacques Vallée. And, uh, you know, since he's been brought on as part of the research team, rather than simply just an affiliate, I imagine he has a specific role, serves a specific function. Can you, can you expand on the role of Dr. Jacques Vallée in the Galileo Project?
1: well uh, the people that work in the research team are um, mostly scientists that um, have a phd and they uh, have a contribution in terms of uh, of the science that we plan to explore so you know in his case um, he is uh, well known uh, uh, for for his work on the subject in the past and knowledge and um, insights uh, about the physics involved in the search and um, like all members of the research team he uh, provides ideas and insights about how we should proceed but uh, if you look at the membership of the Galileo project you will find that it's a big tent that includes both uh, skeptics and um, advocates for an extraterrestrial origin and the reason i brought those communities together is because it it shouldn't really matter the evidence should educate all of us and it's a learning experience you know that we should always approach um science as a learning experience we should be modest we shouldn't pretend that we know more you know one of the most traumatic experiences i had as a child was to ask a difficult question at dinner and then the adults in the room would dismiss it because they didn't know the answer to it and uh, so I pretty much prefer to stay a kid and not pretend that I know the answer, and basically be guided by evidence, and that's the way science should be done without prejudice. And uh, I brought people that with different opinions because I think at the end of the day, it will you know if we get a megapixel image of an object that looks different than a natural than natural rock that looks different than a natural phenomena that appears to have bolts and screws on it, and there is even a label saying made on exoplanet X, you know, then uh, it would become obvious that this is not the natural. uh, uh, So it really doesn't matter what your prejudice is, what your first uh, opinion is. Um, And the same is true if we find that it's all natural or human-made. You know, it's always possible we miss something, but, but the point is that at least we will put limits on on how frequently such things um, that are unusual take place, and um, so altogether, it will be the evidence that will decide, uh, you know, what conclusions we arrive at. And I actually prefer to have people with opposite uh, opinions to start with because then, if we converge. Uh, It will become clear that that we didn't miss anything. You know, if people with different initial opinions come to the same conclusions, that's that's a a triumph for science. Mm, mm, And mm. um, you know, I asked, for example, Michael Shermer, who is the editor of a a magazine called Skeptic, who Mm -hmm. is a member of the Galileo team. I said, suppose we get a megapixel image of an object that looks artificial and not from this Earth, and um, and what would you do and he said that he would report about it in his magazine skeptic and i said well i'm not happy with that i would prefer that you change the name of the magazine from skeptic to believer at that point uh so it's really all about uh, the evidence and i i i'm completely agnostic about that so mm. I, I just like a kid that wants to figure out the truth you know and i think speculations are not necessarily helpful because um then the scientists look at the speculations and say, well, you know, these are not substantiated, therefore we shouldn't even pay attention to it. Well, if we, if we collect within the Galileo project, we collect the data in the standard scientific way with instruments that we fully understand, that we assembled. They are not reports uh, by eyewitness testimonies, they are reports based on measurements and then we write scientific papers, that would bring the subject to the mainstream of science. Mm -hmm. We hope, we hope. And actually, the only people that can object to the project are those that do not follow the scientific method. You know, there are people that prefer not to follow the scientific method. I'm actually surprised that some of them are scientists, call themselves scientists, Um, because you shouldn't stick to an opinion or a prejudice. You should say, Oh, actually, it's great that there is a project that will try to collect evidence. And in fact, it's even greater because it's not using funds that were allocated to other projects in science. So I think all scientists should rally behind this project because it follows the scientific approach to a subject of great interest to the public and of great interest to the government. What could be better than that?
0: Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you clarified the perspective on this, because I I actually I put out a tweet before um, before we jumped on record just to see if anyone had things they wanted to ask. And there were a few people um, and these are people within the UFO community who actually expressed a little bit of concern about um, kind of the Galileo project bolstering its ranks with people that could be called like quote-unquote ufo personalities or like you know a skeptic would just, a skeptic would just say oh they're they're just a believer you know they they're, they're not objective and there were a few concerns around that but i think that you've you've pretty much answered the question i had down for you already where you're bringing together these two you know opposing sides and trying to and trying to bring them together under the common banner of curiosity and uh and, and ex- exploration basically
1: and also um, I think, you know, it demonstrates that science is a learning experience where yes, yeah. we now have on record what their initial opinions are. And then suppose we get uh, high quality evidence or data, they might change their opinion. And that would show you the power, the power of science, of evidence. You know, if someone looks at a megapixel image of an object, you know, it's really difficult to deny. and 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 that someone knows how the data was assembled and this, this data can be reproduced because you can look again, you know, uh, at that point, you know, people will agree what it means. And um, I'm an optimist in that sense, because if, if people with different initial uh, opinions agree, uh, it shows that science is a learning experience. That's a very important aspect of science that you're not supposed to know the answer in advance. And Uh, If you are a philosopher during the days of Galileo Galilei and you say, I know that the earth is at the center of the world, you know, and I don't need to look through Galileo's telescope. And then you put Galileo in house arrest. And if he were alive today, you would have canceled him on social media just because he has a different opinion. That's the wrong approach. Why do I call it wrong? Because if I were to ask that, that philosopher who, you know, Put Galileo in house arrest. If I were to ask that philosopher to design a rocket that would reach Mars, uh, he would never succeed in in building a rocket that would reach the destination because his idea was that Mars moves around the Earth, which is not true. So he would send a rocket; it will never get to Mars, and then eventually we realize, oh, maybe Galileo had a point here: the Earth is not at the center. Now. Of course, that would be a learning experience for that philosopher and the philosophers uh, might decide not to do that, not to learn from experience, not to let, but that's their problem. okay? because NASA, all the agencies that try to launch rockets by now realize the truth that the Earth moves around the sun. The fact that those philosophers argued otherwise four centuries ago didn't matter. Nobody remembers them. And the same is true about whether we have neighbors. You know, you can sit at home on the sofa and say, I don't hear a knock on the door. I don't have neighbors, forget about it. It's an extraordinary claim to say that there is someone outside of this house because I look around and I see only myself in this house. Now, the the mistake you're making is that in order to find your neighbors, you need to look through your windows. The chance of them knocking on your door is really small. They don't do it very often. And uh, not only you need to look through the windows, but better with telescopes. And uh, if you don't understand that, you will never collect that evidence. You would would argue that it's an extraordinary claim. But the the truth of the matter is it will not get rid of your neighbors. The fact that you don't see them doesn't get rid of your neighbors. And uh, if we want to understand reality, the reality that we live in, we really need to collect data. You know, you can put goggles on your head and live in the metaverse, you know, and uh, there you would be at the center of the universe. You will have ideas about virtual reality that flatter your ego. You could look much better than you look in actual reality. You know, you can always look slim and attractive and you are the center of the world and everything is good and happy. The only problem is it's not the actual reality that all of us share, it's in your head. And I mean, the purpose of science is, to figure out the nature of the reality that we all share. You know, that's my duty as a scientist, because, and that's an important point, we can all be happy living in the virtual reality by by putting goggles. We can all be happy like those philosophers that didn't want to look through Galileo's telescope. But if you understand the actual reality that we live in, you can use that knowledge to your benefit. You can build rockets that will reach Mars. You can, uh, you know, develop mRNA vaccines. You can, uh, all, all of the accomplishments, you can build gadgets, you know, that we are using on a daily basis, like, like those goggles <laughs> that you put on your head. So all of these things would not be possible if we were to shy away from the task of understanding the reality that we live in. If we were to live in the virtual realities that flatter our ego. And that's my criticism of people that insist on the notion that it's an extraordinary claim and that we shouldn't fund any search for others in our cosmic neighborhood because i do feel that over and over in history you know we were proven wrong by arguing that we are privileged we ended up not being at the center of the universe we ended up figuring out that the earth sun system is not special half of the sun like stars have a planet the size of the earth roughly at the same separation so, what makes us think that as intelligent beings we are unique and special? It's this sense of arrogance. And I think we should rather uh, assume, be modest, and assume that everything we see around us is sort of typical and most stars from billions of years before the sun. So, Albert Einstein was not the, the smartest scientist that ever lived since the Big Bang. You know, there was another planet um, where a, a scientist smarter than Albert Einstein lived a billion years ago. And on that planet, the technologies that were developed may have reached us by now over a billion years. They may be everywhere. And the only way to figure out if we live in such a reality, it's not a philosophical question. We just need to look through our telescopes.
0: Well, let me lean more into the philosophical for a moment because another aspect of the UFO issue that continues to fascinate me and uh, evidently continues to fascinate some of the most prominent researchers, some of which you have now got on your team, is the interpenetration of consciousness into this conversation and how the UFO issue seems to represent, at least in my mind, and, and certainly I would say in Jacques Vallée's mind and some others, It seems to represent a sort of um a symbiosis between physics and metaphysics or material function and quantum function and perhaps we could even say between science and spirituality there seems to be a shared space and even lou elizondo once said that he believes that the truth of this phenomenon lies within the nexus between consciousness and quantum mechanics how much of an impact does consciousness or consciousness-related studies have on your team's interests with the UFO phenomenon?
1: Okay, so first let me say that I think there is a strong connection between spirituality and space exploration in general, because I attended a forum in the Washington National Cathedral uh, on the 10th of November 2021, and uh, Jeff Bezos was there, and He was talking about the commercial benefits of space tourism and that he hopes that there will be a trillion people in space ultimately and they would think of the earth as um like a national park that they go Mm -hmm. and visit once a month or something um but i was trying to think about it and i realized that leaving the solar system has no business plan there is no way you can make a profit out of leaving the solar system so um The only way that we will be driven to explore beyond the boundaries of the solar system is through a sense of spirituality trying to figure out the unknown you know and trying to look beyond the boundary of our territory which we were born into you know it's just like saying okay there is a street out there i have my own property there is a backyard but let's go beyond that and figure out what's out there because well maybe there are neighbors on that street maybe they're they're quite different maybe we can learn from them so anyway space exploration fundamentally going well beyond where you know the the vicinity of the earth should be driven by uh, a wonder sense of wonder about the the unknown and that's what spirituality is all about Uh, now if you ask me about consciousness my thinking is, you know, that uh, it's an emergent phenomenon. It's, we are made of atoms and molecules and, you know, things that are described by physics and chemistry. Uh, And of course, we are a very complex system. So consciousness is one of those phenomena that comes out of this complex arrangement of molecules. There is nothing beyond our physical existence and uh, in a way, when a person dies, it's just like unplugging a computer out of the outlet, you know. And so, it's possible that in the distant future, we will have robots with artificial intelligence that we will connect to as if it's an individual with consciousness. I mean, they would look to us as if they have consciousness. I mean, the only consciousness we are fully aware of is our own. Uh, for other people, we just they just appear similar to us, you know, in, in the way they behave. So I think there is a possibility that in the future we'll have sufficiently sophisticated um, robotics and artificial intelligence to get the illusion or the impression that a system that was artificially made by us has some consciousness to it. And it's just a matter of the level of complexity and the abilities, mental abilities that that system will have. So in that sense, I don't think consciousness is Anything new in terms of uh, a a component and a substance that is added to the atoms that we are made of, I think it's just... Uh, a result of uh, of the fact that our brain is very a very complex system you know and, see i, uh, I would
0: I would I would, di- I would disagree just only slightly on this because I, I personally feel that perhaps consciousness could be seen as emergent but perhaps also in some way fundamental and that it's embedded within the evolutionary coding of the kind of substrate of our reality. And you look into quantum oh, sure. phenomena and non-locality sure. and perhaps there is uh say, it's like the receiver versus generator argument about the brain and whether it's a complex no, receiver. No, they, and Definitely. I
1: mean, quantum mechanics and physics is the way we perceive the reality around us. And, you know, when you talk about the way we perceive the reality, it must, be through the lens of the consciousness that we have right so when we talk about quantum mechanics and you know uh, doing an experiment that changes the information we have about the system and then the system has a wave function that collapses as a mm-hmm. result of that definitely it's po- it's entirely possible that we just didn't get to the bottom of the connection between our perception of reality mm-hmm. and um you know and and and, and consciousness uh, you know reality is not independent of the way we perceive it it's it's all tangled together
0: right but right
1: what i'm saying what i was saying before is it may well be that we don't have the correct understanding of quantum mechanics but but i don't think that we are anything beyond the physics that we are you know that the, it's just like um, a complex machine you know that you don't figure, you, you don't fully understand, you know, like if you look, if you were, were to give a, a cell phone to a caveman, the, the caveman would never be able to figure out how the cell phone works. And yet we know that the cell phone is something you can produce, you know, um, out of a better understanding of physics. So, so I would argue that we are still uh, early in the game of understanding the relation between reality and the way our brain works. Definitely agree with that, and quantum mechanics may be the indication to that. That you know, quantum mechanics is still puzzling uh, to physicists a century after it was realized. Um, so we don't have a proper understanding of the foundation of quantum mechanics, and we know how to use it to build gadgets, but we don't fully understand it philosophically speaking. And uh, it perhaps it reflects something uh, about you know, our, the fact that we don't understand our brain well enough. That may well be, but I don't think that, you know, it's just like the cell phone would still be a physical object, even though the caveman could not understand it. I, I don't think there is anything beyond that. And I don't think there is life after death, for example. I don't think there is a soul in the human body. You know, a thousand years ago, people thought, there is a soul and therefore you shouldn't have you should ban anatomy because if you were to dissect the human body you would hurt the soul of a person so that there were people seriously believing that the human body should not be dissected and i'm glad that eventually modern science decided to open up the human body you know and and not listen to those people because the only reason we have modern medicine you know fixing the bodies of people right now is as a result of opening it and realizing what it's made of and uh, it was mysterious a a thousand years ago and people thought you know there is something like the soul uh, uh, and and people had all kinds of ideas about how diseases are caused and you know if you were to live a thousand years ago there would never be a cure or a vaccine that to some illnesses and gladly we did open the human body and we figured out what it's made of and we can fix things in it and so i think the human brain is far from being understood and perhaps uh, our understanding of physics is limited by that because after all physics is the interaction of humans with the reality but i don't think there is anything beyond the physical existence that's yeah
0: well, uh, you know, the spiritualists thought that if you cut the body open you'd damage the soul and scientists once believed that you could fall off the earth if you traveled to the end of the ocean. So I think both both sides have uh, have that dynamic of assuming that they're correct when perhaps they weren't. But I do I do find just personally that there is a, a fundamental mysteriousness to life and if you pay attention to the the kind of events and processes that you experience as a human being that for me has given me that kind of underlying feeling that there may be more to life than just physical interactions, uh, you know. And, uh, and I think that's, that's something that none of us can truly know until we close our eyes for the last time, right? None of us are ever going to know until we're on the other side of that, uh, on the other side of that equation.
1: <laughs> well, um, you know, I'm turning 60 years old in a month. And uh, I was thinking about uh, my life and what are the biggest lessons that I learned. And I came up with three, only three. So the first one is, um, and that, you know, all three of them uh, were things that I didn't follow until the last uh, few years. So I, I was completely wrong on these three. So let me put them out there because... It's possible that other people also are wrong about this. Uh, So really, the way it seems to me right now is, you know, we live, and I realized it after both my parents passed away a few years ago. Uh, You know, life is very precious. We we live for a short time. So the first thing is we should focus on the time remaining for us to enjoy, uh, and not on past accomplishments. You know, we often tend to satisfy gatekeepers um, for some appointments or to satisfy members of selection committees for honors, awards, and all kinds of things like that. And, you know, as I told my public, the publicist of my book, after my book got published, uh, Extraterrestrial, uh, uh, the heat that was generated turned my skin into a material like titanium. I don't feel any pain or pleasure out of what other people say about me. I don't really care about it. I don't care how many likes I have on Twitter. So uh, in, instead of uh, trying to impress other people and focus on the accomplishments of the past, you know, wearing medals from our past uh, uh, recognition, and you know, that, that makes you less ambitious. Uh, we should focus on the time that we have remaining and try to make the best out of it okay so that's my lesson number one and i did i as i admitted i i didn't really follow it before the second lesson is that we should start each day from scratch you know and without prejudice without arrogance without a sense of privilege and uh, that's important in the search for uh, equipment from extraterrestrial civilizations for example because instead of feeling that we are privileged that we are really the only intelligent species that ever existed since the Big Bang. We should start from scratch and basically say what we see around us is potentially typical, you know, and most stars from the you know billions of years before the sun. And there could have been another civilization that developed technologies that we are currently developing a billion years ago. And they may have sent the crafts uh, throughout the Milky Way galaxy. And maybe we are, maybe some of them are around, around us. We should check for that. and. So we should start from scratch without any sense of arrogance or privilege. And the third uh, item, that, you know, the third lesson is uh, that money is only helpful in buying freedom. You know? and, and by that, what I mean is, you know, when I was younger, I had to worry about having enough money to have food, to have clothing and, and to pay the rent. And uh, once you get above a certain level of income, you don't have to worry about these issues you know nowadays i i'm on a low carb diet i eat the same thing every day i i cannot enjoy going to a restaurant more than i the, the kind of food i eat regularly and it's pretty much fixed and so having more money will not change my diet uh, it will not change the the bed i sleep on it will not uh, you know and you know most of the time people are driven by the the goal to make more money or to purchase things, to possess uh, things that are more expensive. To me, that's a distraction right now. You know, I want to have my freedom, not worrying about the bills that I have to pay, but at the same time, not worrying about how to make more money, not worrying about how to um, buy more things. So, um, you know, in a way, freedom is really what is the most precious thing. And Actually, a lot of wealthy people are not free. You know, they have to worry about making and they have to worry about huge number of peoples that, people that are employed under them. And, and in my mind, they are not really enjoying life the way they could have uh, because you can just sit on the beach and be free and just think about whatever you like. And, you know, who cares if you have uh, billions or trillions uh, the point is that having that freedom of mind and not being worried about what other people say, that's another thing that not subscribing to social media so much, not not being, mm-hmm. a, yeah. not, uh, being addicted to, to what other people think is a sense of freedom. And it's nothing that money can buy. You know, you have to decide about it for yourself. And, and um, so this is the third lesson. It's just three lessons that I think are really important and that it took me almost 60 years to
0: learn important life lessons from professor Avi Loeb. we appreciate that i think that's really and i i resonate very much with each each of those and um you know it's funny with the billionaires real quick that i actually remember seeing a, a survey not that long ago and they they'd done a survey on a on quite a large number of billionaires and the majority of them admitted they were incredibly depressed you know, uh, and I, I think that that's it's exactly as you said. It's about enjoying the small things in life and being appreciative. And if you're if you're continuously uh, driven for more, 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 uh, that, that 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 doesn't end. It doesn't end anywhere. You just keep going I, I, I rest
1: my case. And and by the way, it also applies to relations with people. Yeah, if uh, you always think the next person in line might be better than the, your your current friends, uh, that you want to you know reestablish relationships and so forth. know that that's the wrong approach because very often people change and if you grow together with another person that the person that you live with is not the same that you met originally and so you can build up um on an on on the existing assets that you have rather than always change them Yeah. and uh, um i think you know just enjoying life uh, for yourself, not, not uh, trying to get your satisfaction from what from other people approving you is extremely important because it allows you to be independent, to think critically, not to rely on the input you get from others. And in the context of unidentified objects, this is the most important thing because you know, the rest of the scientific community is currently arguing, uh, ridiculing the subject arguing that it's not worth studying and it's a circular argument and the only way to break that mold is to actually collect new evidence and that's what the galileo project is doing so i have the courage of leading it as a result of these life lessons
0: actually i'd like to i'd like to ask you in regards to uh, like legacy efforts for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence groups like seti Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on why America decided to spend millions of dollars of taxpayers and private contributors money on efforts for the detection of radio wave signatures as a means of searching for intelligent life, especially when, you know, you juxtapose that method with the advancements we're making in quantum computation it, it would seem an extremely archaic perspective to uh, you know imagine advanced et civilizations would be utilizing radio waves to communicate when when we're already moving beyond such methods ourselves so why why has this been the go-to method for groups like seti for so long when it's yielded really no satisfactory results
1: Right. Uh, that, that's exactly my criticism of the past uh, approach. Uh, it started 70 years ago when uh, there was a seminal paper by Cocconi and Morrison who said that, you know, radio communication is being used by humans. Let's check if there are signals from the sky. And uh, that led to searches for radio waves because they are easy to detect from large distances and relatively low um, power. and uh, um, the, the only problem is it's just like trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be active when you're, when you're looking. And, uh, most of the time the counterpart may not be active. For example, we had, uh, communicated using radio waves just for 126 years since, uh, Giuliano Marconi, uh, transmitted the first signal. And it's only one century out of uh, four and a half billion years, the life of the earth. And. Uh, it's also possible that you know we will develop other means of communication soon. That uh, already, you know, just by using uh, 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 fiber optics and, uh, for communication, we are removing a- and not uh, trying to uh, search for ballistic missiles with radio waves. Uh, we are already reducing the footprint of the Earth in in radio in the radio sky of other civilizations, and. Uh, my point is that there is a very narrow window over which we, we were using uh, powerful radio beams. Uh, and the chance of another civilization being exactly at the same technological stage as we are is, is quite small. And uh, it, it it is arcane, as you said, to look for things that we are doing right now. It's sort of like... Uh, the question by enrico fermi 70 years ago around the same time that this uh, search for radio waves started he said that, well if there are extraterrestrials out there where is everybody and uh, again it um, it's just like a fisherman sitting on the beach and looking at the ocean and saying where are all the fish yeah you know? yeah, yeah and uh, that is the wrong question because you need to use a fishing net uh, in the context of of the search it means using telescopes and my point is, instead of searching for radio waves for another civilization using the same technology as we have, uh, we should just search for objects because objects keep piling up. You know, it's just like plastic bottles on the on, on the surface of the ocean. Um, and over the billions of years that other stars existed before the sun came along, um, there may be a lot of plastic bottles out there with messages in them and we just need to search. And, Their senders may not be around. We don't care because you just find those bottles. Now you may say, how do we know that it's uh, equipment from another civilization? Well, it's very simple. It's the approach that Sherlock Holmes used. Uh, Basically, we eliminate the possibility that it's natural. We come close to it and we see that it's not a rock, okay? In the case of objects like Oumuamua from 2017 that I mentioned or in the case of unidentified objects in the atmosphere of the Earth, we see that it's not human-made, it's not a drone made in another country. It it behaves in ways that our technologies cannot reproduce, and it's not a natural phenomena. So you basically eliminate possibilities, and then whatever you are left with, you know, uh, that's what Sherlock Holmes said, whatever you are left with must be the truth. And uh, in this case, it's something else from another civilization, if it's not natural to the vicinity of the earth, and it's not human made, you know, someone else produced it. And uh, then trying to figure out what it is, is a different task. But my point is, you don't need to know in advance that they're sending radio signals or that they're sending a spacecraft that looks just like Voyager. You don't need to know that. All you need to do is eliminate the options that it's Natural or human made. That's it. And once you do that, then you can start studying it. And for example, if it's still functional, and for for example, if it has artificial intelligence, you want to figure out the intent of this equipment. You know, what, what is it? What kind of information is it seeking? How does it respond to our actions? And by the way, there is no protocol for dealing with such a thing because in the past, SETI traditionally was talking about radio signals. So uh, the nearest star is four light years away. It takes eight years for a round, you know, a round trip of communication. And that's the nearest star. Uh, a star on the other side of the Milky Way galaxy you know, um, communicates over time scales of tens of thousands of years. So there is no urgency in developing a, a response. You know, You can think about it and decide what to do. But if you have an object next to you, just like a visitor in your backyard, you have to decide immediately what to do about it and what its its intent is. And so uh, we don't have a protocol. There is nobody, no organization that represents Earth and no decision about what to do if there is a piece of equipment that we find in our backyard. And um, that's another thing that needs to be dealt with. And we have, uh, within the Galileo project, we do have uh, a team, a a subgroup that is thinking about it.
0: What, what would be your personal prerequisite for coming to the conclusion that we're in communication with extraterrestrial intelligences? What, what would you need for to make that statement?
1: Well, it's very simple. First, I want to say that this issue is not a philosophical question. It's um, just a matter of, for example, getting a high resolution image of an object that shows that it has bolts and screws and, and so forth. Um, Now, it doesn't need to be functional. It could be defunct. For example, Voyager or New Horizons, you know, a billion years from now will be just space trash. So it's possible that space is full of trash, you know, and we can just find it. And uh, Oumuamua, this object from 2017, was the size of a football field. NASA never sent a spacecraft the size of a football field. Uh, So it may well be that there are many more objects that are much smaller than a football field, and we haven't, we weren't able to notice them because they're too small. They reflect very little sunlight, so our survey telescopes never noticed them. Uh, You know, only over the past decade we built a telescope that can find an object from outside the solar system as big as a football field, so in the vicinity of Earth. So um, it's quite possible that there is a lot of trash out there, and that would mean that we will not communicate with it. We will just find it. If we find a plastic bottle on the beach, we know that it was produced artificially. It's not a rock, but um, we can't tell how long ago it was produced necessarily unless there is a date on it. And we can't tell who produced it unless there is a label on it. So, you know, we have to look at it and study. And then um, in terms of contact, I don't think it will be biological creatures. If if it is functional, it will be artificial intelligence. Because mm. you know, biological creatures were not designed to survive for long periods of time in space. You know, uh, they unless, are solely... unless they
0: can do some sort of instantaneous travel, and, and distance isn't a problem for them. Time and distance might not be a problem.
1: Yeah, that. Yeah, but we don't know of a way of doing that as of now. Um, not if yet. it is possible yeah if it is possible maybe they did it uh, and of course one way to find out is to look around and see <laughs> if they are out there but if i had to guess based on what we know but based on what yeah, we are yeah. producing i would say equipment with artificial intelligence now that can outsmart us and it could be fully autonomous i call these ai astronauts you know that operate on their own they don't need guidance because the distance between stars you know is huge and um, there is no point in such a system to wait for guidance about what to do i mean we, right now we have the perseverance rover on mars and it does get guidance from engineers in uh, the jet propulsion lab in pasadena but that's just because the distance is quite small and and also we haven't developed yet ai astronauts but in the future i can see a future where we have equipment that is fully autonomous it doesn't need any guidance mm. from us and it learns from experience uh, through machine learning. So the way I think of it is as our technological kids that we send into space. And I'm very proud of that. I don't want to go necessarily to space on my own for a long trip. Uh, but I'm happy with sending AI astronauts that will fulfill the guidelines that they give them. Just like you know, sending your kids into the world you know, for a while you educate them, you give them the principles that you want them to abide by and the goals that they may have in life. And then you send them to the world. I, I'm not, you know, a a parent uh, uh, that, that overlooks what his or her kids are doing. I'm not um, such a parent and, and I enjoy having my daughters being independent and, um, Uh, So um, I would be happy with sending those AI astronauts and being proud of what they accomplish in space. Um, And I think that is pretty much the future of space exploration. It's not humans going, it's not Star Trek. I actually had uh, an interview with uh, William Shatner uh, Mm -hmm. because uh, at this uh, Washington National Cathedral uh, event, Jeff Bezos said that he was inspired uh, to develop um, uh, SpaceX and and space tourism uh, by uh, being in, uh, by by Star Trek, uh, watching Star Trek as a kid, and uh, I was sitting next to, Avril Haines and the director of national intelligence at the time that he said that, and I said, you know, I never found the, the storyline of Star Trek compelling or exciting because it violates the laws of physics as we know them, and. And she said, "Well, we will. We have to work on you, Avi." And then I mentioned it in an essay that I wrote for The Hill. And the same day, I got an invitation to speak with William Shatner. And uh, I spoke with him, and I said, "Look, uh, William, you you probably understand it the best that the difference between virtual reality and the actual reality, because you played the role of Captain Kirk on USS Enterprise and in Star Trek uh, for many years. And then half a year ago, you went." on a vehicle that jeff bezos constructed to space and uh you probably appreciate the difference between going to space in actual reality versus the virtual reality and he completely agreed with me he agreed that uh, it's a very different experience
0: with the um With the four years worth of of dissemination on the US government's internal interests with UFOs that we've seen occur pretty much since 2017 when the New York Times article came out up to present day with all of the different changes, it's it's certainly opened the door wider in respect to looking at the US history on this issue and recognizing that there really has been a concerted and in, in some aspects, possibly illegal effort to keep this subject out of the public perception, out of the scientific community, for over 70 years. I mean, we're looking at seven decades worth of secrecy, perhaps even seven decades worth of clandestine research and development. How how does it make you feel to know that scientific intrigue and exploration on a topic that has monumental, uh, both scientific and philosophical consequences for the human race has been suppressed for over 70 years.
1: Well, that's very unfortunate because I do think that uh, in order for us to learn about reality, we need to apply the scientific method where we collect as much evidence as possible. And if you ridicule the subject, then that evidence will not be collected. So uh, we will not, we will speculate and the scientific community will ridicule the subject, but we will not make progress. We will not know more. And the only way to know more is to be open-minded and just apply the scientific method and and fund the search. Because in science, very often you don't, you're searching in the dark. For example, we don't know what most of the matter in the universe is, the dark matter. And we've been searching for four decades for specific types of particles. We haven't found them and so it's completely legitimate within the mainstream of science to search in the dark and whatever you find, you report about. And the same approach should have been taken in this case. Instead, it was ridiculed and the public had to speculate. And that's not a healthy situation. You want to clear up the fog so that even if it's not, there is nothing out there, you know, and it, all, it's, it can all be explained in, with mundane explanations. You know, that that is a major progress if you were to say, okay, let's leave this subject behind us. We cleared up the fog. Now we know there is nothing out there that is of great interest, and we just move on. But uh that was not done, as you said. And with respect to the government, I don't think I you know, personally, I don't believe in in, in, in conspiracies within government. I do think that the government is very often incompetent. That I do think so it's possible that data was collected and the reason it was not revealed is because it was collected by sensors that are classified okay so uh the government is always trying to hold on to the data that it has because otherwise adversaries other nations will know what kind of uh, instruments we're using to monitor the sky okay in the u.s and that is completely understandable so uh, it 's possible that those instruments picked up data on things that we don 't understand, and you know it 's not the role of government to worry about things we don 't fully understand that are part of you know that are not part of national security and then Of course, this report that came to Congress um admitted that there are such objects that the government doesn 't understand, so I think uh, the government is sincere about it. there are things that look really weird whose nature is unclear. And, you know, you need scientists to figure out what they are. And, the you know, politicians are not uh, trained to, to do the job. And, you know, the, the military is really about defending the nation. And if you see things that do not belong to other nations, then uh, it's not a matter of national security as much as it's it's an international matter it's the kind of thing that scientists should be engaged in okay and that's that's where i think we are right now that we are at a, a juncture where the galileo project you know is the first well funded project uh, with more than 100 scientists that will address this uh, subject using the scientific method by building instruments and you know the observatories that astronomers developed in the past are not really suitable for this study because if a bird flies above a telescope then the astronomers ignore it they focus on sources that are very far away and in the Galileo project we will follow that object Uh, we will try to figure out whether it's a bird a, a drone an airplane or something else and and that is a task that was never taken in the astronomy community and therefore we have to assemble our own telescope systems to uh, build our software to analyze the data and thankfully now we have much better technologies that were not available that two decades ago and during the days of fermi 70 years ago and he said where is everybody now we have a much better fishing net than he could put his hands on and so let's go and, and search and check and it's really exciting and science should be exciting Ch- science is not supposed to be boring and i think we There is a good chance we are taking a road that was never taken, you know, just like in the poem by Robert Frost. He said that it made all the difference for him. As far as I'm concerned, the main difference is that there is a chance for for the Galileo project to find low-hanging fruit, because nobody took that path scientifically before. And the government may have seen things that look weird, but they didn't go in depth into studying them. So we will try to do that, and our data will be open, and the public could look at it, and anyone can analyze the data as they want. And you know, we live in a an exciting time, I think.
0: Well, I I, I appreciate you not wanting to entertain uh, you know con- conspiracy theories, but um, I think you know it's fair to say the government has had its fair share of conspiracies around Contra, Watergate, Pentagon Papers, and um. This was actually something I wanted to bring up with you, uh, and I know we're nearing the end, so I'll, I'll, I'll maybe ask one more question after this. But this is something I wanted to bring up with you, um, because over the years, we've had some very interesting statements from incredibly high level individuals on the topic of material acquisition and technological exploitation of Non-human assets, in, in plain English, the issue of reverse engineering retrieved vehicles or technologies, and there are a few prominent examples of individuals that have strengthened this idea that perhaps non-human technologies are being studied in extreme secrecy within the world of you know clandestine black broad, uh, black pro, uh, black budget that was not easy to say projects and you know sensitive aerospace programs. So there is. One example, Ben Rich, former director of Lockheed Martin's advanced projects department known as the skunk works. And he once said, uh, during a 1993 alumni speech at UCLA, we already have the means to travel among the stars, but these technologies are locked up in black projects, and it would take an act of God to ever get them out to benefit humanity. Anything you can imagine, we already know how to do. So that's coming from one of the directors of the Skunk Works. Another prominent example is Admiral Bobby Ray Inman, former director of Naval Intelligence and the National Security Agency, deputy director of the DIA and the CIA, as well as later becoming the president of Science Applications International Corporation, SAIC. Now he once acknowledged to a man named Bob Exler on the record back in the 1980s. And there is an audio recording of this conversation um but there were such programs in action that were dealing with retrieved or you know non-human vehicles but he highlight he highlighted his doubts as to whether these programs or these vehicles would ever come to light and the last example i'll provide before i ask you my question comes from a colleague of mine a very well-known australian investigative reporter ross coltart he was very fortunate to connect with and meet a former director of the u.s navy's entire science and technology division a man named Nat Kobitz. Um, He was unfortunately dying of cancer when he reached out to Ross and he is sadly no longer with us. But Ross spoke with him multiple times and eventually asked Nat if he'd ever been read in to UFO retrieval or reverse engineering programs to which Nat acknowledged that he had, that he was aware of multiple craft being retrieved and studied, and that he'd better not say anything else because he was never read out of these programs. And he also did say to Ross that he was exposed to anomalous materials that seemed to share similarities with meta-materials currently being studied by Gary Nolan and, and Jacques Vallée. So I guess you have kind of answered my question in with your perspective on this, but just given, given the kind of credibility of these types of individuals and there are other statements, do you think that there's a possibility that actually the U.S. government does have these things and they've just kept it very tightly under wraps?
1: Well, everything is possible. You know, I, I um, respond to that in a similar way to my response to... You know the classified data that we've never seen I, I i didn't see the classified data maybe of much higher quality and uh, very highly respected individuals that had access to that data spoke about it uh, as a serious matter and of course psychologically uh, that's very intriguing for me and that's why i established the galileo project but you know as a kid i want to put my hands on something like that before i believe it i want to see it i want to use my instruments to Detect it. I want to see it in front of me, and uh, I haven't seen it. So um, all I can say is that it's very intriguing, and maybe maybe it's true, maybe not. But we have we cannot rely on what people say because you know people sometimes have other motives. They can say things without justification, and uh, the only way to figure out the truth is by reproducing it by having physical evidence for it Uh, either you enter a room where you see it you know and or you can document it in a way that all scientists in the world will be able to reproduce it okay and uh, we don't have that Uh, so it's what we have is some people saying some things and to me it's not sufficiently uh credible I mean of course it's i think intriguing. I think it's
0: just just taking into account their level of of their bona fides and you know the type of career they've had i think the, I, I totally agree with you in terms of you know objective scientific data points it's not something that can be quantified and and put into practice, but it's well, certainly... I, I wish
1: we, i I wish we could have access to the actual physical evidence oh me too until until we so it's the same thing with classified data in general, you know the government may have exceptional data, data of exceptional quality and uh, as a scientist i cannot really write a scientific paper or or say wholeheartedly that i believe that what this data means because in order for that to happen i i need to be able to apply my analysis to it I, you know so if there is something physical i want to be able to use instruments to measure its properties to you know and just by people saying that it exists somewhere that's not sufficient um because science is about reproducibility of results now it's possible that it's true but if so you know if these objects exist out there and the government noticed them and the government even put its hands on some of these objects as scientists when we go out to those expeditions we should see it you know we we will find it so uh, just stay tuned Uh, there might be low-hanging fruit if indeed it's common and my hope is that we will be able to report back in a way that is transparent, not like those people who signed the NDAs and cannot speak about it. Um, so we need to bring some transparency to this subject. And, you know, there is no point in hiding the evidence if it affects all humans. It's not a matter of one nation versus another. You know, the way I think of it is, you know, when humans worry about national security like there was... A defense bill in the U.S. Uh, for 2022. That was 768 billion dollars, and it was dedicated to defending the U.S. against other nations. And um, if you think about it, it's just like kids playing in a playground and trying to win in the game. Uh, but uh, they're playing, let's say, with toys that look like cars but but then a real car appears on the street next to them and it comes from a city far away and and then uh, it will change their priorities when they see it right so if the galileo project finds a piece of equipment that came from another civilization that is real and uh, then it may motivate us to invest a trillion dollars per year in this subject figuring out where this car on the street came from and what it represents and you know that's a huge sum of money that's thousands of times more than the biggest science projects that were ever funded and then we could of course build much bigger and better telescopes than the Galileo project is planning we can send probes to the cosmic env- uh, neighborhood near us to figure out where, what else is out there uh, but it will have a huge impact on us and I really think that for the better future of humanity, we should understand the neighborhood we live in. You know, the fact that we don't see a claim that we don't see neighbors, or some people may hide this information in some way, that will not get rid of our neighbors. Uh, And so let's be brave and seek that evidence.
0: Avi, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to speak with me. I think that these conversations are extremely important as we, as we progress our understanding of this issue. And, uh, and I sincerely wish you and your team the very best with your mission going forward. It's been, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. It was
1: a very pleasant conversation. I really enjoyed it.